I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Just how long have Bordeaux varieties been used to produce wine in Italy? Catherine, or Caterina de' Medici, is credited with having sent Cabernet grapes to Tuscany in the 1500s. She moved to France to join her husband and brought with her many things from Italy, including Italian gardeners, elements of cuisine, and novelties, like the fork. She also had a hand in some horrific religious battles later in her life, including the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. If Caterina did send Cabernet grapes to Tuscany, what kind of Cabernet grapes were they? It's difficult to say exactly when and how certain grape varieties moved around, but tracing grape DNA can hint at possible movements across space and time. Cabernet Sauvignon's parents, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, can hint at when Cabernet Sauvignon may have been born. Cabernet Franc is commonly believed to date back to France to the 1600s. But DNA evidence suggests that Cabernet Franc is likely from Spain, from the Basque region, and was possibly brought to France by pilgrims on the Camino. The name Cabernet doesn't show up until 1823, but Cabrunet can be found in 1716. Likely synonyms for Cabernet Franc are found in the 1600s, and there is another likely mention of a synonym in 1534. There's also evidence that Bordeaux grapes were planted in the Loire in the 1050s. So how old is Cabernet Franc? It was probably born somewhere between 1,000 and the early 1500s, but could have been born later in the 1600s. So could Catherine de' Medici have sent Cabernet Franc vines to Tuscany in the 1500s? It's possible. Now let's look at Savion Blanc. This grape appears in Bordeaux sources in the early 1700s, and likely synonyms for Savion Blanc appear in Loire records from the early 1500s. If Savion Blanc existed before the 1700s, it's possible that it could have crossed with Cabernet Franc to have made Cabernet Savion before the 1700s. But was Cabernet Savion around earlier than the 1700s? If so, it was often confused with its parent, Cabernet Franc. The other possibility is that Cabernet Savion was born in the 1700s. 
So could Catherine de' Medici have sent Cabernet Sauvignon to Tuscany in the 1500s? If Cabernet Sauvignon was born in the 1700s, then clearly not. But if it was around and simply being confused with Cabernet Franc, then there's a slight possibility. Even if it was being confused with its parents, though, if you look at the likely birth of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, there may not have been enough time for Cabernet Sauvignon to have become popularly cultivated by Catherine de' Medici's time. If you look at the earliest possible births of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, then it is possible. But if you look at the later possible spectrum of time of the parents' births, Cabernet Sauvignon might not have even existed in Catherine de' Medici's time. So did Catherine de' Medici send Cabernet Sauvignon to Tuscany? At this time, it can't be entirely ruled out, but it does look a little bit unlikely. But we do know that some grapes from France were sent to Tuscany. Let's fast forward to a different Medici. This time, it's a French woman marrying a Medici, instead of a Medici woman marrying a Frenchman. Marguerite Louise was from the Loire Valley. She had hopes of marrying her cousin, Louis XIV. But Louis ended up marrying a different cousin. But then she fell deeply in love with a different one of her cousins, Prince Charles of Lorraine. But for political reasons, her parents forged ahead with a Medici alliance. In April of 1661, Marguerite Louise of the Loire was married to Cosimo Medici III. She traveled south to meet him in a major entourage, and when she arrived in Florence, a huge marriage party took place in June with fruit-filled ice sculptures and a large form of atlas that turned into a mountaintop in a major theatrical display. And a few days later, a great parade featured a procession of relics. Cosimo III was very into relics, and they included St. John the Baptist's thumb and St. Andrew's elbow. At this time in Italy, especially to the Medici, dowries were extremely important. In medieval Italy, and particularly in Florence, during the reign of the Medici, dowries not only served to attract a husband, but they served as life insurance policies for the possibly widowed wives. The deceased husband's estate would transfer to the sons, and the widowed wife would be entitled to the amount of her dowry. Dowries among the upper class were about 2,000 florins, and among the lower class, they were about 10% of that, 200 florins. And the middle class paid an average of just under 500 florins. But for royalty, it would have been much more ostentatious. And with Marguerite's big move to Florence, with several carriages in her entourage, what would she have taken with her? Would she have brought the stuff to have a familiar garden planted? Would she have brought seeds or vine cuttings to produce foods similar to the foods of her youth? Marguerite likely grew up drinking Cabernet Franc in the Loire Valley. Would she have brought Cabernet Franc cuttings? If Cabernet Sauvignon had been born earlier than the 1700s, would she have brought Cabernet Sauvignon vine cuttings, picked up on her journey south? Marguerite loved the ways of the court. She loved laughing and conversation. But Cosimo Medici III was somber and very religious. Eventually, she requested permission for an annulment. She moved out. She refused to speak Italian. She'd mock her husband at court. Her father-in-law tried to rein in her spending and dismissed her entourage. And she sent them off with a bunch of Medici jewels. Her father-in-law put bolts on her doors. Once she caught malaria and blamed it on a poison attempt. She grew desperate and she tried to escape with a party of gypsies. Eventually her and Cosimo reconciled and they had three children. 
none of whom had children of their own. But the reconciliation did not last very long. Marguerite eventually negotiated a move back to France to a convent outside of Paris. She continually kept in touch with Cosimo III, writing him this love note. No hour of the day passes when I do not desire your death. What aggravates me most of all is that we shall both go to the devil, and then I shall have the torment of seeing you even there. I swear by what I loathe above all else, you, I shall make a pact with the devil to enrage you. Meanwhile, back in Florence, Cosimo III regulated Chianti by writing legislation that outlined where Chianti wine could come from. He highlighted the region of Carmignano, which is the area where Catherine de Medici supposedly sent French vines to be grown back in the 1500s. So even in the early 1700s, toward the end of Cosimo III's reign, the French grapes in Tuscany were of notoriety. Did the wines of Carmignano remind Cosimo III of the wines of his wife's birthplace? Did they provide any comfort to Marguerite, who felt exiled in Italy during her stay in Florence? And when Marguerite returned back to France, did Loire Cabernet Franc end up reminding her of Tuscan Carmignano? Did it bring up bad memories of Cosimo III? We may never know, but later in life, she did spend a lot of time hanging out at the palace with Louis XIV, where she likely drank a bunch of one of his favorite grapes, Pinot Noir. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. And Samo Gaweri Gonzaga of San Leonardo on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. How are you, Levy? <laughs> Very nice to have you here. So San Leonardo is somewhat of a, of a unique property in that it's a Cabernet blend, but from further north in Italy than a lot of Cabernet blends that we might think of off the cuff. Yes, it's a, it, it's a bit of a different wine. It's a Cabernet really done in, in the middle of the mountains. You know, it, It's an ancient property. It was an ex-monastery already in the 900 after Christ. And my family has been running it since 1646. And uh, since uh, 1724, we finally rented it off the church. And there is where the real enterprise started. And that's why we write founded in 1724, even though the place has more than 1,000 years old. And in 1770, we finally bought it off the church, which had a financial crisis. 
Uh, we've always made wine, but as you know very well, and before it was more like a part of our diet, so everybody was producing it. It was part of life, and being a monastery, of course, they had vines, firstly because the church, you know, that monks have always developed agriculture in the best way, both in wine, honey-making, which we still do, herbals, uh, and all these uh, very fascinating, at least to me, <laughs> jobs. And then uh, this little estate developed, and then my father was a very poor student in school and he, he gets angry when I say this story. He was very bad at school and actually my grandfather decided to send him to Switzerland to get a proper education in boarding school and he was so fond of all these boarding schools that he changed many. <laughs> he was traced out of most of the boarding school. He was uh, cheating on the exams. He was very, very bad. But then I, I think he, he demonstrated to be a wonderful man and also a very brilliant entrepreneur. But anyways, he after the boarding school, he decided, actually my grandfather decided for him to study enology, which without being snobbish was a very different way because in the 50s, aristocracy was more dedicated to law school, medical school, diplomacy, mostly also to politics, you know? I mean, it was a great time of changes. So uh, agriculture was seen like a, old uh, industry if you want to call it so and wine wine was was always made as your grandfather was making it and in italy there was no culture of great wines white red dry sparkling sweet that more or less that was it and when my father graduated very well actually from the from the wine school he was very brilliant in in university he didn't mind doing the homework and the wine no 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 the wine <laughs> he did i think very well his homework actually he was playing in a band to get uh, pocket money to buy bottles of wine <laughs> during university so but uh, my grandfather made him a great surprise the day before coming back to San Leonardo to work he hired a winemaker <laughs> so it was clear that he had no uh, future in our estate and what he did, he, he went to work in Tuscany, where he consulted for many different wine estates, and actually also for the Incisa family in San Guido, uh, where uh, actually Mario Incisa, the great marquis who created the Sassicai, was a great friend with my grandfather, and he called my father to work also in San Guido and to help him out with some vineyards. He, my father never made the Sassicaia, nor was the nephew of uh, Marquise Incisa, as many say. They were very good friends, the families, but they are not related at all, as most think. That was an error since uh, decades now. And my father uh, worked a lot with him, and actually the Marquis was very generous, and he was opening always top Bordeaux bottles for my father, and showing him what a great wine was, what it was to have a wine that could age, a wine that was elegant, uh, very classic wines. And my father got all this, his passion for Bordeaux-style wines, I think, especially with the Marquis Chisa, who I would say was his enological godfather. Then my father left after his experience, and Giacomo Takis came to San Guido and made the Sassicai. It's a, it's a different road. So my father just had a great experience in, as a cellar master in San Guido. And then he came back to San Leonardo, and we had already the Merlot since the 20s, the 30s. So uh, I think we are one of the estates who has international varieties since a longer time in Italy. And we had what was called Cabernet Franc. But surprisingly, my father, in 1978, I think, or 80, he bought some new Cabernet Franc from, our, from the gentleman who makes our vineyards. And the vines are created in France. And uh, uh, this gentleman is the one who makes the vines for Latour, for Romani Conti, for Petrus. He's a fantastic guy, Jean-Marie Guillaume. 
And uh, he has a selection of vines that he doesn't even really sell on the market. He decides to whom to sell. And my father ordered some new Cabernet Franc from him because he wanted the best in the market. And he planted the vines. And after two or three years, he started seeing differences, enormous differences compared to the one we had. So he calls this gentleman and then he called a friend of his who's uh, Attilio Scienza, who's a very famous Italian uh, professor in in enology school and on history of viticulture. Fantastic man, very wise. And he called them both. And when these guys arrived at San Leonardo, they noticed the total difference. And he said, and Jean-Marie Guillaume said, you know what? You have Carmenère. You don't have Cabernet Franc. You have Carmenère. So we started tracing back the history of this cepage. And actually, it was my probably my great-great-grandfather who brought it in the 1800s from Paris, where he used to live a lot. Uh, he must have fell in love with the wines of Bordeaux, which were made enormously with Carmenère in the 1800s. And after the phylloxera, Carmenère disappeared. A lot was already imported in the north and eastern part of Italy, but sold under the name of Cabernet Franc. So most of it has been replanted with a new Cabernet Franc and it has disappeared without leaving a real trace of wines to be remembered. My father was lucky enough that he kept the wine and he had enormous experience on this wine because it was already 150 years we were cultivating it. And so we continued to prune it and my father developed it. He first tried it in spur cordon, but the results were very poor in terms of quantity. It's so poor that this is probably one of the reasons why in Bordeaux, after the phylloxera, they did not replant it. It's a very difficult plant to, to raise. You need a lot of green uh, uh, part to make fruit. If not, you, you can go from 20 quintals per hectare on a spur cordon to the pergola where you can produce three, 400 quintals per And that's dirty water, I tell you. It's it's horrifying. It's even worse. It's, it's horrifying. And so we developed a lot. Uh, my father tried a lot uh, with Guyot. Then he made a very long branch on the Guyot to make it develop enough leaves to, let's say, to produce fruit. So this has become, for my father, the soul of his production. The Carmenere is a secret ingredient, I would say the fingerprint that gives the identity to all our wines. And this is a story of why San Leonardo tastes in a different way. It actually has a, a green, a vegetal note to it. Well, it has a little etch to it, a little cut. And you know, I think that one of the reasons, it, uh, and we are very careful never to change the soul of our wines. This is the most delicate thing for us, especially with the climate changing, with vines getting older and putting in new vines, explanting older ones and planting new ones. So it's not easy to maintain the style. And this is the most difficult thing. But we are happy because we use so little technology in our cellar. It's all made of concrete vats, no cooling systems, none. We have only three pumps. And we don't use selected yeast. It's all natural fermentation. We have no filtrage. We have no stainless steel in our cellar. And it's uh, this technique, which is very traditional, non-fancy. Today, it's coming back. Huh? Cement is getting fancy and uh, a lot of people are starting to use it again. But we've never changed. My father never wanted to change the style of the wine. The aging is made in barrels, but we don't use much new wood. We use a third. The other is two, three, four, even five years old barrels. And this has helped us to maintain the style. This is what we look for in San Leonardo. So how long was the Carmenere in the ground before it was identified? What was that, about 150 years? Or? Yes, 120. Now, I would say it's 150 years now that we have it. So it must have been in the second half of 1800 that it arrived. We don't know precisely when. And is it grafted? 
Yes, it was regrafted all with American food. No, we don't have anything with uh, original rootstock, unfortunately. So it's a blend of Cabernet, Carmenere, and Merlot. Exactly. Maybe a touch of Cab Franc, like actual Cab Franc? <clears throat> no, we always wrote it, and most of our backladers of all the old vintages report Cabernet Franc. In most articles, there is written Cabernet Franc, because when my father discovered it in the 80s, Carmenere looked, sounded like a bad word. Nobody knew it, not even in Chile they knew it. You know that they were mixing it up for Merlot. And so we were not ready to say Carmenere. Also, I think that the vision of my father, he was a, he's a great agriculture, he's a great winemaker, he's never been market-oriented. And so he probably didn't see uh, the word Carmenere as a, such an advantage also. You know, he, he just continued on. He didn't really care. He wanted to make his wine good. And I admire him for this. I think he's pure 100% in what he in what he is, my father, still. What is the soil type at San Leonardo? So San Leonardo is, is uh, we have two major types of soil. So the lower part of the estate, it's, it's not that big, San Leonardo. It's, it grows in a little valley. So I speak of two soils that may seem big, but it's very small. The lower part of the estate is gravelly with a bit of uh, clayish soil uh, because you must imagine it was the bed of the river. Instead, the higher part is the side of the river. So the river deposited there all the sand through the centuries, I would say thousands of years of sand. And it's beautiful because, you know, vines often need very poor land to grow well and to express and a good drainage. They don't want water to stay in there. And and this uh, is uh, the most composition. Then recently I have made some, uh, um, from the woods we have cut parts of the wood we have 300 hectares of wood we, we own a mountain still and it's very steep and luckily we found three hectares where to, uh, now they will become five hectares where we developed uh, new hectares and it's pure land it's completely organic from the beginning and it's more uh, um, calcareous how do you say um some limestone in there? Limestone, yes. So it's it's interesting also, you know, to have different cabernet grown in different way. But Salonado is kept uh, in the old part. And that valley is called Vallagrina? Vallagarina, yes, exactly. And what's that like in terms of wind patterns and climate? The Vallagarina has this uh, beautiful mountain which is called uh, Monte Baldo which already in the 1500s was called the Garden of Europe, and the English botanics were coming there to uh, study the flora of it. In fact, we find 60% of all the flora on top of this single mountain. And this is why, because there is the Lake of Garda behind it, which is the largest Italian reserve of sweet water, and it always keeps warm. And this mountain never glaciated, so it never iced completely in the last ice age. And it allowed to have a lot. We have 40 types of different orchids, savage orchids on this mountain. It's very, uh, very fascinating, I tell you. And so the thermic winds developed by this mass of of water are called Aura and Peler. And the Aura uh, is a wind that blows from south to north and every day around two it starts blowing. And this is wonderful because it's a warm wind. It heats up the land. It takes away humidity, which, you know, is one of the worst enemies of vines, of most agriculture. And uh, and then at night, we have all the cold air flowing down from the mountain. So this is the beautiful part uh, because of these thermic excursions, which are really, really important. So your dad gets back to the estate, and then what's his relationship with his winemaker and then also with his his own father? But he, he just stayed a couple of days, I think, and then he made his suitcase and left because we, he was very upset by my grandfather taking hiring a new winemaker. I mean, he had just had a, one of the best diplomas you could find in Europe at that time. So I think he had a very—my my grandfather was a 
was a man born in 1895, so I'm 38, so he was very old. He could have been my great-grandfather. And uh, my father is the youngest of his family, but he's from 1938. My great-grandfather had done World War I. He had been in the middle of World War II. He had seen a lot of horrible things. He was a very brave man. He won medals uh, of honor in war. His mother was a war hero who saved 12,000 prisoners from Russia. He was a very uh, old uh, school man, very tough, uh, all of one piece, we say in Italy, all in one piece. Uh, I think that my father suffered, but uh, the character of my father is quite, uh, he's a bit of a warrior. So he never, he doesn't have bad memories of his father. He loved him and he says always that he understands him today. My grandfather, I think during the war, had a horrible thing. He was stuck on a teleferric, how do you call it, between a mountain and the other. They had a, a wire and they were transporting animals and people on a small wooden, uh, how do you say, like a, a box, you know. And all of a sudden he found himself with uh, the opposite army, which was the Austrians in that time, shooting from him from down the valley to the up. And he was uh, hearing the, the bullets whistling through his ears practically and horrible world which brought millions of dead in Trentino, they say that the mountains were covered in blood and it was soaked in blood. So I think, you you know, when you see these kind of things, it's obvious that when you come back, you're not the same. And my father grew up in a strict environment, even though he was so, <laughs> he took all his liberty and he was a, a very rebellious uh, boy. But then I think that he's a true classic today, I think. You know, it took him a while. Then he came back at the beginning of the 70s already, uh, let's say, helping his father here and there. And then in 74, he took over. And I think his father would be extremely proud of him today because, I mean, the, the estate was destroyed when he took him over. It was one of the many properties of the family, but not very well taken care of. Our family had lost enormous amounts of money in the wars. My grandfather had been robbed. Uh, he was tricked on a big business, he lost enormous amounts of money, so the property was very left over. And my father actually was selling cements, industrial cements, he made some of the biggest works of Italy, and with all the money he was gaining, he was just throwing it back in San Leonardo. He never bought himself a nice car, or things, fancy things, which he wished, of course, but he never did, he had one idea in mind, he wanted to create the Italian chateau, and I think he has succeeded today. So your father becomes more directly involved with the estate in 74? Yes, totally then. involved. And who kept his counsel in terms of the wine at that time? Were there other people he would... No, uh, he, he, well, he had an internal winemaker, but was, it was him, uh, let's say, uh, driving him. And actually, uh, the old winemaker, who's a very nice guy, who is one week younger than my father, and he was hired by my grandfather. My father kept him after when he came in because he didn't want to fire him at all. And uh, my father always tells me that in 1985 which was the first vintage of Takis in our estate, uh, one day the internal winemaker put bentonite in the red wine to, you know, to clarify it, to clean it. Bentonite is really bad on red wines. You can use it on white wines to clean them up, but on red wines, I mean, you, you're taking out the life of it. And so my father said, oh yes, uh, Dr. Takis, everything is fine. We just put bentonite because he was, uh, like the, the old winemaker was so short. My father wasn't there. And uh, yes, they already put bentonite in the wine. What? And, and my father says that he can still feel the shout of Takis in the phone and that he became completely white. And uh, in fact, 1985 could have been the first great vintage of San Leonardo, while the first real 
top 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 one was 1988. That seems like the same kind of generation as Beyond Santi or The Prince at Fiorano. Yes, actually, of... they were friends with uh, uh, Prince Boncompagne. What was that relationship like? Ah, you know, they were all friends. They were most of them were aristocrats uh, living in in a, I would say in a restricted uh, circle of society, and they were hunting a lot together going to balls together and exchanging a lot of ideas. He was extremely friends with Piero Antinori and Ludovico. They grew up together in Florence because my family had passed seven or eight years in Florence. So they, they were, my father always tells me they, they were racing in Florence with cars, very small cars. They had no money to buy cars, but Fiat 600. And uh, uh, in Piazza della Signoria, there was one little road and they were racing two cars, but just one would have gotten into the road because there was the space just for one car. So it was a very dangerous uh, ride. So, But he said, you know, I mean, the roads were empty. There was nobody in the world. I mean, it was a different world. And they were hunting on the weekends in these wonderful properties in Tuscany and horse riding all day long on the weekends. He was a very tough worker, and don't get me wrong. And he, on himself, he didn't have that much money, but the world he was living in and his title, his name, gave him access to everything he, he desired at that time. I think he had a lot of girlfriends as well. He was very easy. was a very big playboy, by the way, my father. Because that generation seems influenced by the winemaking of France and Bordeaux. Yes, they were highly influenced by what... It was the moment where the cuisine was changing, Nouvelle Cuisine was arriving... France was invading Italy as well, and the top wines of the world were only French, of course. And so everybody who wanted to be a bit fancy had these cellars with French wines, and but very few would understand. And the Italians started admiring. Actually, from this, just to give you an idea, Giacomo Takis was, uh, was not friends with my father at all. He was the uh, sole consultant of Antinori family. You know, At the beginning, he was the exclusive winemaker of the Antinori family, and then he went to Sassicaia. But it was Piero Antinori to send him to Sassicaia to Marchese Incisa, to Niccolò Incisa, the son who was very bright in, in doing the Sassicaia as it is today. And uh, uh, my father, when he started making Salionado and the quantities, 1982 and 1983 were completely done by my father. But 1984 was a very bad harvest. He did not produce. And he called Takis to help him out with the wines in the cellar. And he called, first of all, Piero Antinori to know if he could ask advice to Giacomo Takis. And, and uh, Piero said, listen, you don't have to pay him. He's my winemaker. If you want to make him a present, you, you can. You don't owe me anything, but I'm happy to give you Takis because the more we make great wines, the better it will be for Italy. And we have to create a lot of great wines in Italy. So this was how Takis arrived in our home. And he stayed there for about... 20 years from 1984 yes, to 99, so 15, 16 years of work. And then Takis, uh, with my father, when Takis was starting to become old, and he, uh, he said to my father, let's take uh, Carlo Ferrini, he's the only one who can manage this type of wine in the same direction. It was my father. And actually, my father had just read an article written by Ferrini, who said, oh, San Leonardo, what a wonderful wine. It would be one of my dreams to make this wine. Oh, it, it worked out. It, it really worked out. <laughs> so what was uh, Giacomo Takis like? I mean, he recently passed away. Yeah. Giacomo Takis was a, a difficult man. He was a burbero, we say in Italian. So closed, a difficult man, a very difficult man. 
he wa- he would not come to San Leonardo very few times. My father says that they would attract him, him and his director, Luigi Tinelli, who is the real right arm in the business of my father, who is a, who's a boy who was born in San Leonardo and raised by my father to become the director. The mother of Luigino, who lives in San Leonardo as well, is a great cook. And they would attract him with making bacala, which Takis loved. So they would say, oh, we're going to make the best bacala, and he would come. But uh, Takis was very, he was a genius, but he was difficult, difficult, difficult. Also, the tastings of the wines. And one anecdote, which is great, they had, I don't know, 30 barrels, and one was really not so good. So Takis tastes these 30 barrels through samples sent to him in San Casciano. And he says, oh, Lugino, 29 is not perfect. Then there is one which is really not good. Please don't put it in, in the blend. So Lugino makes the blends. And with my father, you know, they didn't have much money. He said, what are we going to do? It's 255 liters of good wine. Listen, maybe he got it wrong. Let's try to do a pre-blend and let's send it and put it in. And Takis receives the samples. He tastes it and he says, it's wonderful. The blend is wonderful, the pre-blend, but... Uh, Luigi, did you get it wrong? Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe you put again that bar because <laughs> and Regina and my father they they turned white. He said, "No, no, 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 no," and but they did not put it. They, they threw it away. And but that was the 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 ability of Takis. So incredible. What was the goal in the seventies, the eighties? I mean, w- the goal was to make a place survive, especially in your own life. You're about almost forty. That places you your beginning at the beginning of your dad coming back and making that wine, right? Yes, well, I have a, a bit of a different story than my father because I, I was trained in economy. And then when I left university, I, I went to, um, I wanted to do the gaucho for a year. Oh, okay. <laughs> to go to Argentina, ride horses, cattle. That was one of my dreams. I love the countryside, you know. And, and then I ended up in South Africa and I worked in cellars first and I, clean the floors, you know, and uh, I mean, I scratched off the tartar from the vats, I mean, uh, simple works, but uh, it's very important to do, you need to know how, how heavy it is to work in a cellar. And then I went to work in banana plantations, then I ended up working in a lion breeding project, which was very fascinating as well, with 130 lions and taking care of them. And then my father had a, a cancer and uh, he phoned me up and he said, uh, you know, I'm not feeling very well, please come back. He was very anxious at that time and he said, uh, in one week, you tell me what you want to do. He gave me the family ring and he said, within one week, you tell me what you want to do because I'm not going to pay for your life and uh, you, you, you have to get out of home and, and uh, do your own stuff. If you want, you can come to work with me. And I must say, probably because I was also afraid, I was 22. I was young um, and I was not prepared. So I ended up a bit because I, I wanted to stay next to my father, a bit because I was afraid of, of the world. At that time, I ended up working for my father immediately. And the first years, I tell you, I, I hated it. First, because my father was extremely strict with me and uh, he was difficult. I think he had full of anxiety to see that I had, I was developing and I was capable of running the estate myself. And then after two years, he settled. The cancer was gone. He was in great shape. And I stayed in the countryside. And then when I married, I finally found a bit of peace in my heart. And I really started dedicating myself. So I would say that when I started to be 25, I really was involved full-time with my mind in the estate. And I helped my father redesign completely uh, the, the, the future of the estate. My future estate was uh, 190 or 100,000 bottles producing. Today we're doing 350,000. And 
but I had a lot of fights with my father because he did not want to change anything. And I'm glad he did not change the style of the wine, but I'm glad that I forced him to change. You need to be in the world as, as well. You need to know the market. You need to know how to do PR and marketing. Unfortunately, these are things that uh, are important. And so I started working a lot on the marketing. I created with him, always with him, because I mean, the best ideas ended up to be the ones in the middle between me pushing on one side and him pulling from the other. And we created all these new wines, and, and which had the distribution, had to create more fuss and buzz, and, uh, and uh, the name of Sanyamada started going around to de develop a little bit more the market. Definitely it's the wine and my father who have made the story. I just wrapped it up for the new millennium. And maybe I created the latest wines like the Pure Carmenere, the Pure Riesling, these very small niche wines are my passion as well. Well, Sanyamad, of course, is the family wine and the Carmenere, the soul of it. Uh, I wanted also to transport into a single variety wine to show people what the Carmenere was. And I started talking a lot of this Carmenere which uh, in, in the beginning of the 2000s and trying to, you know, really show them what was the unicity of this wine. And I think uh, we were very successful. It does sound like your dad lived at a life at a high altitude that was also somewhat of an insulated world, like a very special world. It didn't so much go with the general trends of the times in the late 80s and the 90s. It feels like it kind of stayed... Yes, it was some other vision that wasn't. No, totally. He didn't want to change. He wanted to do his wine as he wanted it to be. A lot of people asked him firstly to have more bar new barrels. Then it was the whim of high alcohol and concentration. Then in the beginning of the two thousands, we had all these autochthonous varieties coming out from Italy, and everybody wanted us to put Teroldigo inside. And but my father said, you know, Teroldigo, we don't grow it. We never grew it. Why should we put it in? And he always kept the style. He didn't bother of this. And then what about Carlo Ferrini? So 16 years we're working with him. He's a terrific team leader. He knows about land. And Takis didn't understand anything about vineyards. Ferrini understands everything about vineyards. And this was very important to convince our men. Because, you know, you can think whatever you want. But then if you don't convince the men who are working with you, you're not going to make it. And Carlo Ferrini convinced them to change pruning systems. He really helped us a lot at the beginning to change many things and passion he has about wine and the memory. I mean, he remembers in what's inside the cellar better than us sometimes. And he helped us. He helped us. He's not the guy who takes only the best things and makes the best wine because there is his name on it. He takes all the cellar and makes the wines. You don't throw one liter of wine away. In terms of the ferment and concrete and then the aging in barrel, does it go through mallow and tank or in wood? In, in tank, all in tank. How long does it take usually? Mallow can take a long time and it's really non-definable because we don't have the heating of the vats. And uh, sometimes the mallow, we do it in, in March when the spring is again. So many, many times the vats stop because it becomes too cold in the cellar and they do the mallow lattic at the beginning of the next year. So it's, it's a slow process. Does it rest for a while on leaves? Or? Yes, yes. We, we leave it 14 days on the skins. Then, uh, of course, you know, it starts the leaves maybe another 15 days that it cleans up. And then it stays another five or six months in the concrete tanks. Then it stays two years, 18 to 24 months in the barrels. Then it is bottled and it stays at least two or three years in the cellar. I mean, we're selling 2010 right now. 
And then Carmenere, what does it bring to the table now that you've identified it and you know it and you actually have it identified separately? What do you think? Well, Carmenere gives this uh, bell pepper note, peperone note. It has uh, an enormous amount of color, uh, enormous amount of acidity. Uh, The tannins are not too, they're never dry in our wines, but they are very present. I think it gives a lot of structures. I, I prefer it as a blending wine. Even though aged, it is marvelous to taste it aged. So do you see a correlation between some of the warmer vintages and some of the cooler vintages? People say yes, and a lot of wine critics, they identify them. I have put a lot of data on a piece of paper, on an Excel sheet I wanted to see. I haven't really seen. The mountains have helped us to stop. The cool air at night has helped the vines to breathe. Salonite is a bit of a different place, and we work a lot. We don't clean the leaves, the defoyage, as you call it. We don't do it. You leave the leaves in. Yeah, we leave the leaves. Cover the berries. Yes, absolutely. Is it in a rain shadow, or do you get a fair amount of rain? No, it depends. We get even hail and a lot of wind sometimes. Weather is violent today, this is for sure, and it's a pure pity. I mean, I remember, I think two years ago, I was on my knees crying because, I mean, the wind was like 40 knots, and uh, there was... At a certain moment on my window, one big ball of ice arrived, and I said, it's finished. I mean, it's going to destroy all the plants. And said they didn't. It just rained really hard. But in 2012, we got a horrible hail. And in fact, we are not going to make San Leonardo. San Leonardo, we jumped at 84, 89, 92, 98, 2002, 2009. And 2012. So we jumped quite a few vintages. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. relatively. It's quite quite rare. But my father always said, well, if the bottle is expensive, it must be a good one. And I agree. I mean, if you spend so much money, you want to be sure to have an emotion. So what is your father's feeling about the wine? I mean, he's been doing it for a few decades now. Yeah. He's seen it really progress over time, and he's had a chance to taste old vintages. What does he think about what he's... I think that the system of prunage has helped us to get a more balanced wine, so it is ready slightly earlier than before. Of course, you're tasting always the most recent vintage, and then you, you cannot imagine how they're going to become. And you look at the old ones, they always look better and better and better. So old wines are fantastic. So do you think that he achieved what he wanted, or does he sometimes express regrets or unfinished On wine, products? yes, I think he did. Yeah, On wine, he really did. Then he has regrets on some choices we made in the years. He regrets the dimension of the estate because he was forced to sell half of it with a succession taxes in 74 when my grandfather died. So he regrets that because uh, that would have given him the ability to have a wider production. It would have helped economically to make the estate bigger and survive in a better way. While in the years, the beginning of the years 2000, we had such a hard time financially and that those have been days I got my white hair there, I'm sure. I mean, it was really a massacre. Is that because you were out of fashion with the yes. critical trends? With the critical trends, definitely. I mean, nobody was really giving us any more the attention we, we used to have. So that sounds very difficult. You know, uh, when you believe in something for uh, a long time and you sort of pioneer something for a whole country in a way. Definitely. I mean, I remember coming to Vinitaly and people saying, no, we, no, this year we're not buying anymore. We are full of stock, full of stock, full of stock. And it was so hard. I mean, I I was so sad. I remember one night coming back from Vilita, desperate, really desperate and saying it's impossible. I mean, we had so many debts and uh, we didn't really know how to 
make it, I think. And then uh, all of a sudden, I mean, I, I used to work at night uh, all the day long, I mean, and especially thinking about what was the right road, what was the road that would not have ruined the past but would have projected us to the future because that was the worry. I don't want to destroy what my father created. I just want to make it better and help him. And patience uh, really drives you insane and you sometimes you really don't know how you're going to make it and then all of a sudden things start paying back. Today in wine world, there is a lot of ethics involved. Finding truth. There is ethics in wine. You're dealing with nature. You don't want to leave traces. You want to do it and to release an emotion to whom you are addressing the wine to. But now things are okay in the export markets with San Leonardo. It's uh... Yes. Uh, you know, I, I mean, after those hard times, I think that I'm grateful to hard times because I think that they taught me much more than nice times. My father was used to really uh, asking 60 bottles and giving two. And I never really lived that moment. I heard it from him when I was a, a kid. And uh, and then my father really never realized that the market was really changing. And so... That uh, there was less demand. There was very little demand at a certain stage. But he didn't want to change anything. So I started traveling a lot, as I told you. And uh, But that those hard times really... I wanted it to work. I wanted San Leonardo to survive so badly, but so bad I couldn't sleep at night. And the banks and everything, it was really a hard time for me, uh, especially internally. Also because we were a bit pushing on the opposite sides. My father didn't want to change anything. I wanted to change even too much. And the lucky thing is that I think that in the middle we found the best solutions to many things. And many things I, I, I have this director who's a I told you, the right arm of my father, he was a fantastic man. I mean, I brought down this bottle from the, I still remember, from the grappa. I found this bottle, this water bottle from the 1800, from the attic of the house. It's beautiful. I brought it down and I showed it to my father and to the commercialists. I said, listen, why don't we make our own bottle, this stamp, and we patent it? And they said, no, 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 we're going to spend this money for the grappa. Are you crazy? And, and uh, well, uh, I took Luigino, <laughs> I convinced him, we went down to near Venice, Treviso, and we, we had the bottle redesigned. Part of it I paid it myself. And, and most of the things we introduced in the estate were like that, like the Carmenere. The Carmenere, I bottled it secretly from my father. Now he loves it. Also because the wines he was making in the 70s, the Cabernet and the 80s, were pure Carmenere. Uh, but he didn't see the why we had to do other wines. He had he said we have the Salonade, we have the Villagresi. Why do we have to do? And instead, I thought that Carmenere was essential to making understand a lot of people the essence of our work. It is a beautiful wine. It's a wine that needs a long time. I tell you to age. And we bottled these one thousand seven hundred twenty-four magnums uh, secretly with Lugino. I still remember when we told my father, <laughs> he wasn't very happy. But now he's very happy. And then, and then I went on. I I created the white wines in the northern part of the region without having the land. So I used the system of Trentino, which is a cooperative place. So I went. I chose the land. I chose the people, especially who were cultivating the land. We gave them our protocol. And then we went into the cellar and Carlo Ferrini helped them vinify the wine and we made it out to become the identity of San Leonardo, even if it wasn't out. It sounds like maybe there was a time or two when your your dad questioned your judgment. I bet that was probably... Definitely. I mean, there's been times very hard, I tell you, that it was my father. Times where his uh, his dream, he thought I was stealing his dream out of his hands. 
And I think this is why. And But I admire him anyways, because there are fathers who don't leave their children to do anything. Probably because he understood that I had qualities that he was lacking, and I understood he had qualities I was lacking, that we needed each other. And so he left me to grow. And sometimes he was pulling very backwards and changing advice quickly. So he would say, okay, let's do it. And then the following day he said, no, no, I never said this, absolutely. And this was hurting me so badly because the passion I was putting into this, I mean, this was life or death. Probably because I was younger, I was very scared of the banks. And I really thought in my, my profound that they would have taken away the estate from me. And I, was, I, I had grown in that place in the summers and I loved the people in that place. And it was like a dream. I, I don't do this job for money. I, could, I think I could gain 10 times more in other sections. I, I really don't need that to live. But it's my root and it's my life. And I really love it so badly. And, uh, I, and I think that I wanted it so badly that it became again true. And uh, as well as my father and as all the others. I mean, it's not just my work, absolutely. I just think that in a, in a time of, of fear and uh, of doubts, I, I, I gave a lot of enthusiasm to all the people in San Leonardo to try it again, you know. And we succeeded all together. And with my father, we relaunched really the estate. And I think it's, it has a brilliant future in front of it. And Samuel Guerreri Gonzaga is used to working with lions, whether it be wines, properties, or fathers. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much, Levi. And Samuel Guerreri Gonzaga of Tenuta San Leonardo in the Trentino Alto Adige. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levi Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.